Petri Dish is a product of Petri Dish Media, all rights reserved. Petri Dish is a science comedy podcast and should not be used as medical advice. Do not get medical advice from a podcast. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Science! Science! I know the human being and science, science. can just peacefully. This was our finest. Guys, welcome to Petri Dish. I'm Nathan. I'm Sean. Now, we're on our part two of a three-part series on racism and science. And if you haven't listened to the first one yet, listen to it <laughs> in rough sketch. It was about the creation of race and biology in the 17 and 1800s, the ways that this nascent field of biology during the scientific revolution was intertwined with racist assumptions, the fact that the word race itself is kind of a product of this period. In the 1800s, you had Darwin and Mendel. And although those guys were not necessarily themselves racist and their theories were entirely valid, of course, they were quickly used by people to develop new, bigger racist things. <laughs> this episode is about that complicated story, starting with eugenics, a remarkably popular idea of breeding out quote-unquote negative traits and undesirable people. And then it's renaming into the field of genetics, which is tragically intertwined with the history of racism, despite the fact that it, of course, points to an actual material reality, the existence of genes. Yeah, so eugenics is broadly the idea that there are desirable, inheritable traits that are simple and apparent enough that you can pick them out of people and rate or judge people based on their genotypes and phenotypes. Right. It's one of those things that, in as much as it emerges out of Mendel, is fairly innocuous. But now we're going to put it on people. Woo, it's going to get bad real fast. Right. And so based on that, you know, there was this idea that was actually extremely popular, like you said, that it's beneficial for society, for those people that have the desirable traits to make babies with one another, and for people that have undesirable traits or whatever to uh, not make babies and or die. So, you know, that idea of eugenics... Which I think if you asked a lot of people about right now, you'd still find a good number of people. Again, can't have beards with guys past 10. Okay. They'll start saying weird <laughs> right. shit real fast to so you. So that toxic idea that devalues and demeans human life and oversimplifies genetics, that was born in 1865 and then kind of morphed into a lot of stuff later. So let's get into the history of eugenics and genetics. We're going to talk about eugenics, and to give a little just perspective on the time period, eugenics was popular around the 19, I mean, really, like 1900 all the way to World War II, when Nazis took eugenics too far. And <laughs> they ruined it for everybody. They ruined it for everybody. <laughs> and so we needed a new name. We'll talk about that later. But eugenics was one of those things that was not necessarily about party affiliation. It wasn't necessarily a liberal or conservative idea. It was very closely tied to a reform movement called progressivism. Which I want to, like, decouple from, obviously, modern progressivism or any other variant. You know, these are people who believed in temperance, who believed in suffrage rights for women, and inside progressivism was a pretty big debate over the idea of eugenics. If you go around and you try to find out, hey, who was a eugenicist back in the 19... The 19-teens and the 1920s... You're going to find a long, uncomfortable, bipartisan list. Right. And some people that, for other reasons, would be considered heroes or people who were extremely ahead of their time in other ideas. Right. Margaret Sanger's a great example. Right. Very pro-women's rights. Total eugenicist. Yes. And, and this had real consequences in multiple countries. There were forced sterilizations of people of minority races in America, in Europe... In the United Kingdom, and, and of course, uh, in Germany. Yes. Yeah, and not just of people of different races, people with mental disabilities, very famously. What was the name of that court case over that? It's like Bell versus something. Yeah, I have it later in the notes, but I don't mm. remember it right now. It's a crazy court case where the Supreme Court basically said, you know what? Yes, 
You can force sterilize people if their genes are bad. It's like, you fuckers don't even know what genes are. Yeah, and as far as I understand, there hasn't ever been a ruling going against that ruling since then. In a way, though, that's a good thing. Because what that means is no one's tried. <laughs> well, I, here's the thing that's crazy to me is that, like, in the U.S., yes, hey, eugenics, we forced sterilized a lot of people before World War II, mm. right? But then we also forced sterilized a lot of people after World War II oh, really? as well. Yes. I didn't know that. We kept going. Oh, that's bad. Um, oh. <laughs> I think I think the latest one I read about was 2010. Ah, Hank Hill. That was the last season. I think. <laughs> His narrow urethra. <laughs> of King of the Hill? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, in California, 148 women prisoners were forcibly sterilized. Wow. In 2010. Okay? So did, what? Yes. Yes. 10 what years was the ago. context? Uh, the context, as far as I understand, is that they were, well, so prisoners have been forcibly sterilized for some time. I think that they were getting some kind of other checkup and then without consulting them or anything like that were forcibly sterilized. Wow. Um, there was a brief period where law in America was good from like the Earl Warren court basically for 20 years, (laughs) but like the 1920s, dude crazy fucking bullshit time like Oliver Wendell Holmes was you know pleasant although pro eugenics mm-hmm. if I remember correctly and there was a court case dude where a guy named Singh a Sikh guy was arguing that he should be allowed to be an American citizen and they were like yeah but bro you're Sikh and he's like yeah but hey come on like I'm Aryan and by your racial laws thus as an Aryan I should be allowed to get citizenship and no bullshit the Supreme Court literally said they're like look sure like, maybe from some German theory of race that we built our laws off of, you're like, quote-unquote, Aryan. But, bro, you're brown. <laughs> so, like, by our common vernacular of race, sorry, you cannot be naturalized. This is a crazy fucking time in American history. Yes. And there was a lot of naughty people. Uh, so, this isn't in the notes, but one thing I do want to mention is that, again, there is a weird apologist streak in modern thinking where people want to look back at a time and be like, oh, because this thought was common, it's excusable. But not every intellectual in the 1920s in the U.S. Right. was a fucking eugenicist. Okay? Right. That is not accurate. Like, even fuck Clarence Darrow. Okay, yeah. Clarence Darrow from the Stokes Monkey Trial. Yeah. Right? The basis of the Chicago lawyer. <laughs> is a <laughs> dapper fucker. Yes. Richard Gere. Yes, and he wrote a lengthy essay lambasting popular eugenicists yeah. by basically saying... Their science is bullshit. Yeah. They don't know enough information to do what they want to do. And even if they could, there's no evidence that a eugenics-driven policy would result in a better world anyway. Whenever someone tries to paint a period with too wide a brush for some relativist reason, it's probably bullshit. There's always been healthy debate, practically in every culture. They're fucking in, in early Catholicism. There were like huge debates about whether to eat peaches or not. You know, like everyone's, <laughs> people have been arguing about shit the whole goddamn time. Yeah. And there's been people who were right. Yeah. In the same way, there were people that were right back then. Although ironically, we're only going to talk about the people who are wrong. So let's, besides Clarence Darrow, let's keep talking about wrong people. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so how did this ball get rolling? Yeah. What the fuck is eugenics? Right. So this first dude, Francis Galton. Okay. And so we mentioned him at the end of the last episode because... He was a cousin of Charles Darwin. Galton sounds like a poor man's Kroger's to me. (laughs) (laughs) Galton's. Galton's. Okay. Francis Galton is one of those polymath gentleman fuckers. Hate those. Right? He's like, look at all the ways that I'm learned. (laughs) So he was actually a very smart racist. Sure. Okay. That happens. Very well educated. And when he read his cousin Darwin's The Origin of Species, it blew his dick off, okay? He was just, like, totally absorbed, especially with the first chapter. Right. And the first chapter being called Variation Under Domestication. Right, and he's like, whoa, animal breeding. Yeah. What about human breeding? Exactly. So he was like, what about for people, though? Right? (laughs) Like, right away. And so he is the one who invented the term eugenics and also invented the term nature versus nurture. Wow. Yes. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I say that a lot in screenwriting classes. (laughs) (laughs) But the main point is that nature versus nurture, I think for a lot of scientists, is one of those false dichotomies. Interesting, right. Nature and nurture mixed together, in my mind, way too much. There's too much interaction between them. Right. That it's meaningless to set them up as two opposed things. And also, like, if you just think about experimental controls, what is the platonic condition of nature that you could, like, even measure? Isn't anything created necessarily part of its environment? and thus necessarily impacted by its environment. Well, so what is the nature you could ever study? Sure, it's, it's interesting that they, not too long before this time period was also when there's really famous stories about like feral children, right? right? Like Ugh. 
Like, whatever. The Victorian times were shit. Yeah, they were terrible. <laughs> that was a terrible time. Anyway, <sighs> Galton also performed some twin studies. Okay, for you know, trying Prince to... Prince Albert had a fat dick, though. What? Yeah, Prince Albert, the name, the reason the thing's I understand, Prince but why are you talking about it? Well, a lot of breeding, right? They, they... <laughs> <God damn it. laughs> the the Saxe Colbert house. Hemophilia. Like, it's easy to believe in eugenics when, like, Queen Victoria's running around with a bunch of kids that fucking can't bleed, right? Yeah, all right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so he did some twin studies to try to look at what traits are hereditary. Okay. Like, like leadership at the top's important, right? Like Donald <laughs> Trump models leadership uh, tragically for America. You look at Queen Victoria and you're like, eugenics must be real. <laughs> because look at this broad and all her fucking dying children. Well, it's interesting you say that. Uh, we'll maybe get into that a little bit, a little bit later in this episode. Yeah. But there is something called regression to the mean. And it's an idea, a statistical idea that it was yeah. actually partially borne out by eugenics. Chris. Because when you take like two really, really smart parents, their kids often aren't smarter. Yeah. And are a lot of times less smart. And sometimes one kid sucks up all the smart and becomes an immunology <laughs> researcher and the other kid's a jackass who works at a bar. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I, I cut off your idea though. Okay, so sometimes no, the, the, smart people have idiot kids. I think we all know some. This was a, it was considered a problem in eugenics. Right. They were like, what's the deal with that? Because <laughs> that um, bothered them. They were like, we right. want to get together there's, a bunch of smart people. They're so hardwired with their racist bullshit that obvious truth is flying in their face and they need to find a way around it. Right, exactly. But in any case, he was particularly interested, Galton was particularly interested in the heritability of intelligence. And he thought that in a good society, you would get smart people to breed with one another and produce a lot of children. He was very worried that there is a trend for smart people to only have one or two kids sort of later on We need to kibbutz these babies. We need to kabooty blitz them. Right. He was like, listen, if you're smart, you need to be banging way more often. I think because he was smart and he wanted to have more sex. You need to get on the paddy wagon. All right. That's my nickname for my booty. Wow, really? Yeah, at work. They're like, here comes the paddy wagon. <laughs> and my booty roves in. <laughs> Fuck. Climb on board the paddy wagon. <laughs> that was a racist thing, wasn't it? Oh, really? Is, isn't paddy like Irish? Oh, my God. <laughs> Whoops. Because there was a lot of Irish policemen? Right? Yeah, it's interesting because, like, obviously the most famous and most probably fundamental racial dichotomy in America is white and black. But, like, a lot of our words come from Irish racism <laughs> in a way that's now invisible because all we have is St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, yeah. Well, we allowed them to buy in because you can erase your Irishness easier than you can right. erase your skin color. Like, a famous expression for getting good deals is like, oh, I stole from the Mick, right? And what? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. A penny from the Mick. <laughs> oh, my God. You fucking did it. Just kidding. Okay. Oh, man. So, Too much fun. <laughs> He liked to compare different groups of people based on how often they produced people of exceptional quality, usually defined by intellect, zeal, and work productivity. You know, and the funniest thing is these are the same people who, like, we're, like, smart Jewish kids who try to come to Harvard. They'd be like, oh, we need to figure out something else, some other metric. We got to kick out smart people. Yeah, well, so, so what I think is interesting is that Galton was another one of those kind of unusual racists. Kind of like how if Darwin was racist, he was a weird one, right? Okay. Because he'd be like, yeah, different races are different, but then the ones he would compare are like weird ones, right? You know what I mean? Like he he wouldn't compare white and black. He'd be like, yeah, these two islands produced people of different intellect or something. Right. He's got these weird... Ever since Rousseau, Europeans had a weird hard-on for island uh, groups as being almost like these platonic and comparable control groups. Like, that's like a rich history in European racism. Yeah, so Galton, one thing I'll mention here is one of the ways that he did this comparison was he he really pioneered and popularized normal distributions and standard deviation. Oh, that's good. As in, like, kind of fundamental statistics. Galton oh. is partially responsible for, like, inventing and popularizing statistics. I knew when all the polls were wrong and Donald Trump won, I was like, <laughs> something's rotten in the state of statistics. <laughs> yeah, it's Galton's And fault. it was Galton. All the way back. <laughs> So, for example, his comparison of different human populations found that lowland Scots and northern English people are smarter than ordinary English people. That was like (laughs) one of his comparisons. And he found that African people, he said, are two grades below English, but one grade above native peoples of Australia. Fuck. And that Athenians were two grades higher than English people. Wow. It's just, it's a weird series of comparisons. Yeah, Athenian's pretty weird. There's still like a fundamental racism in it, 
But like, he's a weird racist. You know, Edinburgh was uh, known as the Athens of the North. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Good job, Scots. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to brag about the fact that I know how to say Edinburgh. <laughs> it was beautiful. Yeah, it's funny because like Athenians were just like living in ruins and like fucking drinking out of broken pots of wine by like by like the eighteen hundreds. Well, to be fair, he made a normal distribution of like ancient Athenians. Oh. He was saying ancient Athenians were two levels better than modern English. I'm like very skeptical of his model. I don't know <laughs> well, how yeah. you measure that. It's out of how many people there are, how many people are exceptionally great. That's right? it's, it's so like the, dumb. How much does a people's or race Produce generate gray, yeah. greatness? Oh my God. Was his way of comparing. One Pericles is definitely worth like three founding fathers of America. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, racist, but like a weird one. Yeah. The bigger problem was eugenics overall, right? Okay, like he yeah. kickstarted this idea of eugenics. Right. The societal element of like, we need society to foster right. this kind of really nitty gritty organizing of peoples into one's deserving and one's not. Right. right? He bones his cousin, his second cousin. He takes his shit. That's good. <laughs> makes it all weird. And now we have eugenics. And we're going right. to breed some traits. So Galton. Galton had a protege. His protege was named Carl Pearson. I feel like I've heard the name Pearson before. Are there still, like, things named after him? Yes. Many things. Pearson is one of the biggest deals in statistics. And agriculture. He invented the pear. In fact, he was the son of a pear. He <laughs> pear <immersed> son! Him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, fuck. <laughs> That's what... A <laughs> pure comedy here, folks. Don't let me... <laughs> Don't All let me slay you down, Chad. But, look... Pearson's contribution to statistics are such that I hear his name all the time. Right. All the time in statistics. It's okay? interesting because once again, we're, he like is so important foundational to modern statistics because he wanted to find a way to get eugenics going. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He invented chi-squared tests, which are a huge deal. The Pearson correlation coefficient, which has to do with like linear regression and shit like that. Wow. Uh, P-values. P-values are like the way that scientists often use to tell if something is statistically significant. They'll be like, oh, it's a P-value less than 0.01 or something like that. <laughs> that shit was invented by Pearson. Damn. Okay. Holy shit, was he a racist. Right, like, because Galton was, like, one of those flamboyant, dilettantish English gentlemen. Right. Pearson was, like, this is around 1900. This is when, like, there's a big debate in America about whether they should be imperialist or not. And Pearson was, like, we need to go really ham, take out the inferior nations. We need to be the strongest nation state, and here's eugenics to make it happen. Yeah, Pearson saw war against inferior races as a logical implication of the theory of evolution. That, like, if evolution and natural selection are true, we must wage war against, you know, what he considered inferior races. Science is bad, man. Okay, and so <laughs> he felt like, on a societal level, it was a waste of resources to try to improve the lives of people that were of, quote-unquote, inferior stock. Ah, okay? fucking Mitch McConnell over here. Yeah. God. Well, so the thing is that you will find people today who believe basically the same shit as Pearson. His opinions on this topic have not gone away. Okay. I, I was at the bar and there was this like older white dude who I was serving and he liked me because I was like, I knew something about wine. And then I mentioned, oh yeah, all the guys at TSA, they're like a lot of young people from the neighborhood. You know, I saw a couple making out once on the, the commuter bus. He's like, yeah, they're filth. <laughs> Right? Like, they're just, like, scum. They're bottom feeders. And it's like, what are you mad about, man? He's, like, with his wife, they're rich, drinking $20 a glass of wine. And he's so mad. Just calm down, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, last thing, Pearson also really loved Aryan terminology. Right? So stupid. So instead of Caucasian, he really loved the idea of Aryan race. Right. right? Which is interesting because there's another field, like, linguistics, right? And out of linguistics emerged this, like, crazy Aryan idea Again, it's the tragic case of like a like a a legitimate field finding itself and being racist in college as it starts right. to germinate. Right? right, right. And so 1907 is when some of this Aryan terminology really started to get popular and Pearson was all about it. And part and parcel with that, he was also like a rabid anti-Semite. So. Damn. Congrats, Pearson. He sucks. Congrats, Pearson. So like, uh, hey, Deuce you made bag. Galton look like a great guy because yeah. you're such a piece of shit. God. Okay. So we're going to take a break and then we're going to get into uh, some more uh, racist, some more eugenic, really racist sons of bitches. Fucking guys. All right. The following is an actual advertisement. Today's episode of Petri Dish is presented to you by Podgo. 
PodGo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. It provides podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so that you always know how much you get when you include an ad from PodGo. We recently joined as a member, and you can too. It's really easy. You just need to apply to become a member, and you're immediately connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's at podgo.co, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. Okay, so we just talked about a couple British eugenicists. America, such a beautiful land of the free man. No eugenicists here. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) Right, so Charles Davenport is going to be our first look into American eugenic racism. Number one, baby. Right. So Charles Davenport was hanging out in 1901, and he was a big fan of Galton and Pearson. He was like, these dudes are nailing it. But he also read up on the recent rediscovery of Mendel's work. Right, someone's drudging around a fucking monk's habit and, like, finds Mendel, makes a big splash, and this guy's like, oh, fuck, this is the key. Right, so he felt like, okay, now we really need to dig in because we have this understanding, this burgeoning understanding of genes, genotype versus phenotype, inheritance through these things kind of getting passed down. Now we have the model. Right. And so he founded the Eugenics Record Office in 1910 at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories, which is a very famous lab to this day. I'm never going to work there because I'm not a scientist. <laughs> nice. No. What do they do now? They do all kinds of work, a lot of genetics work. Is it all racist? Not all. Not, whoa, <laughs> whoa, shots fired. Well, it, Cold Spring Harbor, like many old institutions has a very troubling legacy of racism. That's real. You know what I mean? Yeah. So he studied all kinds of traits and diseases with relation to inheritance, including some work that he published on the effect of, quote-unquote, race crossing. Right. Okay? Which, you know, sometimes he called race crossing and sometimes he called miscegenation. Okay. But basically he was looking at the effect, expecting to see a negative result. Okay. Of course. And so, even by the standards of a lot of other eugenicists, he was a pretty bad scientist. Right. Like, he was not very good at analyzing a lot of the data that he was collecting. That's kind of become a bit of a motif as we enter Nazism. It's like, <laughs> the deeper you get in eugenics, the more your science is bad. Yeah. Because it's, like, not true. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's good you brought that up. Not only was he extremely concerned about miscegenation, he was really racist, particularly against black people, and considered them fundamentally genetically inferior to white people, but also he was a Nazi sympathizer. So, you know, I mean, I don't know if you need another reason to hate this Davenport guy, but he was a racist. I don't like the name Davenport. Yeah. You know what's something I just had a thought about? What? When I was in high school and college, I never had the urge to dress up as a different race. Right? That's yeah. a, isn't that such like a weird thing? What's going on with Justin Trudeau and people, right? Like, why are they always doing that? Right. I also did not feel like a really strong drive to like do blackface or it anything It just like didn't that. happen. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like a moral dilemma. It was just like, it just didn't come up. Sure, sure. I dressed up like a woman. Oh, yeah. You need to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. It's just weird. But anyway, so on our step towards genetics, we're like, are we in the 1930s by now? We're getting pretty close. This is still okay. a little bit 1920s-y. Okay. But but after Davenport, there were a couple people that worked with him at this eugenics institute and everything like that. And I'm mentioning them kind of more as like a little... Uh, I'm mentioning them because their names are famous to me. Right. These are mentors of Sean. <laughs> no. Just kidding. I actually like my mentors. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ronald Fisher... And Reginald Punnett. See, that already, wow, these guys, their names, man. Yes, well, Ronald Fisher, I know about because he also invented a lot of stats. So like Pearson, Fisher was a big deal. He kind of created F distributions, which are a certain kind of normal distribution. Very important for statistics. He also came up with the student's T-test, which is like one of the main statistical tests that people do nowadays. Fisher and Pearson were both involved with the creation of ANOVA, which is another huge statistical test that I use like all the time in my science. He had a big role in biology, concepts like mimicry, allele dominance, heterozygote advantage, and he helped popularize p-statistics, the p-value in statistics. And then Punnett... Punnett squares. Punnett squares. I've done Punnett squares. Yes. I think most people in high school biology have done those goofy Punnett squares where you have capital A, lowercase a, and all that stuff. And they're like great for flowers and like not as good for human stuff. So both these guys, racists, eugenicists. Okay. That's just how it is, everybody. I'm sorry. That's how it goes. I mean, frankly, like, look, I like Punnett squares. 
as a way of doing things. But yeah. I like ANOVA and F distributions and all that stuff. I don't think we need these dudes' names hanging around anymore. Like, I don't need to know Punnett's name to be able to use this square. I say, fucking, let's take let's the monument down. Yeah. Yeah. Grab them. Just keep them in the, keep them in the, you know. In the history books. That wing of the museum for racists. The racist Where, where, where Philadelphia has all its skulls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a bad place. <laughs> all right, so. So far, we've been talking about eugenics, and it's been like a broader project in Western Europe and America. Then this thing called World War II happens, and like Nazis, and we're going to talk about Nazis in our next episode. Nazis went really, 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 really ham on like the whole eugenics idea. And so in America, a lot of people who basically agreed with Nazis felt a little weird about it, right? They're like, ew, gross. I can't say eugenics anymore because it's a Nazi thing. Right. We chucked out the term eugenics. And. And we replaced it with human genetics. Right. So, and I mean that really literally, there was a journal called Annals of Eugenics. And they replaced the eugenics part with human genetics, so that it was annals of human genetics, okay? One for one. There, there were courses taught at universities, including San Francisco State University, where I got my master's degree. There were courses taught in the 20s and 30s on eugenics, just like eugenics. Right. And then the course title in like 1945 was changed to human genetics. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they just, it was a very conscious decision to just like wholesale swap it over to this other term. So from very early on, just the idea of human genetics really closely tied to eugenics. This is why like when people talk about an elite, like a technocratic elite society, I think that shit is so dumb. It's like, look, China's basically that. That's like a really highly educated technocratic elite ruling China. There's a fucking million Uyghurs in a camp and like fucking Hong Kong's getting ruined. Like technocrats are just as liable to be blinded by their biases as anybody else. Sure. We're going to talk about the Academy a little bit later. And right. I'll get into some right. more yelling about These it. These are all like... super smart guys who had such an important impact on their fields and also were blinded by their preconceived notions. Yeah. I mean, I hope this came across in the last section, but like Davenport was a shitty scientist, but Pearson and Fisher were legitimate geniuses. They revolutionized statistics in a way that we all in science use to this day heavily. That society broadly benefits from. Yes. And and part of the reason, part of the thrust for why they revolutionized statistics was to better figure out how to be racist towards black people and other people of other races. Okay, not like, to be on contra- purpose. Not to be controversial, okay? Declaration of Independence, good document. American Revolution, I benefit from it. Kind of, maybe, was it also so we could, you know, so slave owners could keep their slaves better? Uh, kind of was, man. You know, <laughs> like, history's complicated in that way. Right. So, DNA and genetics, right? Genetics existed before we knew the structure of DNA, but after we knew the structure of DNA, it really kicked off as a field. Right. Now we have uh, the actual material reality of genes. Holy shit. Right. And so, that happened with a paper published in 1953. That paper... James Watson and Francis Crick were on there. Right, Um, two very famous thieves who successfully totally (laughs) fucked a female scientist named uh, Rosalind Frank. Lynn, Rosalind Franklin. Oh, my bad, named Rosalind Franklin. Yeah, and so it's interesting, they were provided at several points crucial information that helped them resolve the structure of DNA. Some of those communications were from Rosalind Franklin herself, and then other ones were her sort of boss sharing her information without ever asking her with these dudes who then went on to publish this paper, get really famous for it. You know, it's interesting. This paper was published like basically at the same time as a companion paper that Rosalind Franklin published with her advisor and everything like that. Right. So I think, first of all, I don't think it's controversial to say that their success was directly because Rosalind Franklin was involved. Right. I don't think that's controversial. I think also it was unethical the extent to which they profited from her work without giving her authorship on that paper. She was a woman and she died of cancer at 37. So, you know, they buried her and forgot about her for a long time. Right. So she died at the age of 37 in 1958, four years before Watson, Crick, and her boss, Wilkins, got the Nobel Prize for their discovery of DNA. Now, in a certain sense... 
uh, the Nobel Prize is like usually not given to people after they die, right? right. It's supposed to be for living scientists. So they kind of dodged a bullet there. I have no idea if the Nobel Committee would have recognized her or not. Nope. <laughs> They're too busy giving Bob Dylan Nobel Prizes, okay? But in any case, uh, she, she, she died at a very young age, 37. You know what I mean? From so cancer. So James Watson is one of the fathers of genetics. I mean, he stole the baby from the crib. Yes. And is an ass monkey. Yes. Not only is he a thief... He's a racist. Yeah, he's a considerable racist. He has repeatedly and without evidence suggested that black skin is genetically linked to lower IQ and that IQ is a good proxy for intelligence in the first place. We're going to talk about that, guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, next episode extensively. He also said that people with dark skin have stronger libidos and that Jewish people are smarter than white people. See, like, I don't know if that's true, but they do work better in comedy rooms. <laughs> <laughs> and also that Chinese people are smart, but not creative, and so on. Okay? It's comical how much these still undergrid our modern stereotypes of these groups of people. Right. So, right? I mean, I think part of the problem is that Watson can walk around, or, well, okay, he's dead now. But he could walk around, say a lot of these things, and a lot of people would be like, yeah, you know? But they're racist. They're fundamentally racist. Right. He was fundamentally a racist, and he couldn't shut his fucking mouth about it. What's amazing is that he successfully, you know, he was part of the discovery of this material reality of genes, and yet didn't actually scientifically back up any of his racist comments. And just really quick, just for the sake of our audience, why isn't skin color tied to, to intelligence, however you even measure intelligence? Yeah, well... Part of the problem is I don't know how to measure intelligence, but the other part of it is that there's a set of genes that are involved with skin color. Right. And then unrelated genes, right. a lot of them, yeah. hundreds of them, yeah. that seem to be associated with intelligence. Skin color is not related to shit, right? <laughs> there, there's, oh, man, I, I don't even know where to get started on this this early. Well, one thing I'll say is that there's a paper published in 2012. Wow. Eight years ago. Damn that the explicit conclusion of that paper is that they believe that darker skin pigmentation is biologically related to things like IQ and libido. Jesus. Okay, and they have a whole bunch of these arguments about it. Pretty much all wrong, but, you know, whatever. Anyway, the point is, that persists. Right. You know what I mean? That persists to today. Uh, I think I misspoke earlier. Um, Watson, I think, is still alive. Crick is dead, which is too bad because Crick was the quiet one. Yeah, he had the good sense to not be loud about how he's racist. Right. Okay. Like, like I think if I understand, Crick has written like a few letters in private where he seems like sort of in support of eugenicist ideas. Right. Okay. But he was quiet in public. Watson proudly and loudly, loudmouth fucker, does not seem to be able to shut the fuck up about how he's a racist. So, yeah. hey, you're still alive, Watson, but you're a racist. Go fuck yourself. Um, but he doesn't listen to the podcast, so, you know, whatever. Maybe he does. That would be fun. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah, so let's take a break, and then we can talk about a little bit of the science about genetics and population and all that stuff. Cool. The following is an actual advertisement. Do you love plants? Don't be silly. Of course you do. You might just not know it yet. I'm Vikram Baliga, the host of the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives and careers of some really cool plant people. Join me each episode as I chat with students, scientists, and professionals in the natural sciences and figure out what keeps them coming back for more. We'll explore their work, the ways they got into their fields, why they love plants and nature so much, and why you should love those things too. Planthropology is laid back and conversational and will keep you laughing and engaged whether you're a scientist or not. Follow along for this adventure into the sciences and keep being really cool plant people. Hey guys, we're back. You know, Sean's had some time to cool off from, <laughs> from, from Watson. Getting hot. Still pretty mad about Watson. Woo. But um, let's talk about the field of genetics itself. Yeah, so, you know, we've had these advancements in our understanding of the structure of DNA, of genes, and how they work. You know, we've had the Human Genome Project and a lot of subsequent work sequencing a lot of human genomes, and it's given us information about genetic diversity amongst humans. One thing I will say on that note is that the sampling of people for genome sequencing is still heavily biased toward white Europeans. Right. Heavily biased. And then there's been a pretty good amount 
in East Asia and really, really low amounts in Africa. Right. Okay. And just like Aboriginal, man. Woo! Not a lot of that. Sure, sure. You know what's what's annoying is that now that you've done like your 23 and me, they have your genes. Yep. So if I like went on a murder spree, yeah. they could find me. Uh, they'd find you anyway. No, what? What do you say? I that? don't even because you. You'd I'm be so like, crafty. You'd be like holding the bloody knife the whole time. It's true. I'd probably be bragging in a Panda Express. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'd be holding them. I'm like, I've already killed six people. I want my orange chicken. <laughs> That's true. I'm not good at it. <laughs> but in any case, so we need to. We should sample more. I think at the same time, there is a lot of people of I would say African ancestry who are skeptical of things like white scientists coming to them and asking to like draw blood for whatever they want to yeah. do and stuff. And that's a pervasive thing. Like I have a I have a white coworker who's like they're never going to get my genes, you know. <laughs> well, yes. So so on one hand I'm a scientist, I would love more data. On the other hand, I get it a little bit. Right. What we're about to really go into is like <laughs> all the ways genetics has been perverted by douchey scientists yeah and so if you want to say that human genetics is not always perverse and not always racist i would agree you know what i mean like it's not always racist not every person who studies human genetics is a racist it doesn't have to be that way it's just one of those hard things like when you meet a proctologist (laughs) right like that's a person who decided to study butts Okay, well, you wonder about that, right? Like, who's that kind of guy? <laughs> it's the same with human genetics. It's like, of all the genetics, you wanted to study human genetics? Hey, you might be fine. But, like, you also might be a little bit Stephen Miller. Yeah, so it, it might be worthwhile to explain a little bit how it can be used awesomely. Right, like right? with sickle cell anemia studies or, like, with Tay-Sachs, right? Like, I don't know. Like sure, sure. Th- those are examples of things that pop up in relatively specific populations. But it's also really informative to just be able to... Know, for example, that... You're 12% Japanese somehow. (laughs) Sean is 12% Japanese. How'd that slip in there? Um, (laughs) That there are certain genes associated with increased risk for cancer. Right. And so you can find out that you have certain mutations that will make you more susceptible to get, like, breast cancer, for example. Right. And this can be really powerful information to inform you on how to stay healthy and hopefully cancer-free. So there are ways that this can be leveraged to like really, really help people stay alive. It can be a positive good, okay? But boy, is it hard for people to keep racism out of human genetics. Right. Okay? It comes up all the time. Yeah. Not a year goes by that there isn't a racist human genetics paper published by racist scientists. Yeah. Okay? Like li- Literally every year. You, you want to go back, you just only look at 2018. Only look at 2019. Look at the six months of 2020 already a racist paper has been published. Okay. Like, damn. We can't help ourselves. Damn. <laughs> so, that's rough. Well, what's an example? Okay. I can't remember now if this was supposed to come up later or not, but the 2020 paper was about how different human populations have essentially resulted in differences in IQ, height, and. Why are, why are people so obsessed with IQ? We're going to talk about this later. <laughs> yeah. But like, I'm just going to throw my cards on the table. IQ is so fucking dumb. If you care about IQ, just go join Mensa and like carry a tiki torch around as you try to like do weird racist stuff for Donald. You know, like, ew. <laughs> IQ's so gross. Yeah. So also, we'll- height? Like, I don't know, like, you go to Korea, and like everyone who's over 45 is like two foot nothing. And then everyone who's post-war is like six foot. Something happened there, guys. People got food. Like, yeah. that's stupid. So we're, we're, this is something I think that comes up next episode, but there's an idea. It's called heritability of a trait. And heritability is talking about... That sounds like a guy who's bald and irritable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, so heritability is a measure of how much a trait, how much the variation of a trait within a population is explained by variation in genetic differences between people. Right. But it's within a population... With knowledge of controls of, like, things like nutrition and stuff like that. Like, like heritability is largely independent of, like, oh, how much nutrition are you getting? Mm -hmm. Because it's known that height is extremely heritable on one hand. Right. Okay? In that within a group of people that eat the same shit, a six-foot-tall person and a five-foot-tall person, a lot of that difference is explained by differences in their genetics. Right. 
But also, like you were saying, diet matters a huge amount for development of all kinds of things. Right. If you don't have enough food when you're a kid and growing, all kinds of things get stunted. Yeah. So... I only ate Panda Express and McDonald's as a child. I'm three inches shorter than Sean. (laughs) (laughs) Well... In any case, (laughs) MSG stunted my growth. We got a little off track, okay? But talking about, you know, human genetics nowadays, right? Race doesn't get used that often. It gets used sometimes impressively. Some people have, like, kept on really wanting to use race in human genetics papers. But But but. by and large, it's been replaced with other nomenclature like ethnicity or ancestry, okay? And I'm not saying that ethnicity or ancestry are the same thing as race. Right. But... They're kind of tragically, we're switching the nomenclature a little bit. Here. Well, the they get kind of pulled together in that they're trying to occupy a similar kind of space in that they're a way of grouping people. And they're supposed to be a way of grouping people that is supposed to be more based on this idea of inheritance. Right. right. Okay, so like ethnicity is talking about tracing back your lineage through your parents. Stacy is so the on. 28th generation. Of a Chinese general who moved to Korea in 600. There you go. Right? Whereas, like, we are the first generation of potato farmers <laughs> who lived and died with the seasons and have no knowledge of the past. <laughs> yes. Yes. We do not know from whence we came. And race has fallen out of favor because race just, like, doesn't make any sense genetically. Right? Like, race was kind of a weird Linnaean construct. It's not genetically good enough to, like, get to be in papers anymore. Yeah, well, it's just race, usually because race is... Mainly about skin color. Right. Uh, it's like eight alleles or something, right? Yeah, and it's just like... Like a, a lot of people in the continent of Africa have darker skin color than a lot of the people in France or something like that, right? Yeah. But in Africa, there's a lot of different skin colors, first of all. Right. A lot of different skin colors. And then on top of that... There's a lot of people that have been geographically isolated from each other right. for tens of thousands of years, and therefore their ancestry right. has had a certain amount of time to kind of genetically drift apart from one another. Right. The idea of black as a race, and even of Africa as a continent, does not necessarily gel with genetics. Right. Those bros in Ethiopia have been doing different stuff than Zulus, you know? Like, just like, it's not a good grouping. Yeah, yeah. Plus, there's all kinds of weird shit that happens with, like, like people act like North Africa is, like, a completely different thing. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's just, it, the, it's, it's a, race is a mess. Race is a mess. And it really shouldn't be involved in biology anymore at all anyway. Race is like the movie Rat Race. Just like a total mess. <laughs> Smash Mouth is running around. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what I want to say here yeah what? what i want to say is i like rat race yeah i like rat race i don't want to i want to own what i like <laughs> well but it's okay that it's a mess and you like it yeah right? I mean, it's I, a I hot think, mess yes whereas racism is a bad hot mess <laughs> i think it's hard to argue that rat race is not a mess right? <laughs> right. it's difficult to take that but position. it's on purpose it's like we should give credit to the filmmakers fuck. for their goal and they achieved fuck. it fuck we are so off course right <laughs> holy shit okay Oh, boy. What I wanted to say (laughs) with this section was that ethnicity and ancestry are real things, and grouping people by ethnicity and ancestry sometimes provides you with insights. It does make a little more sense than race. Yeah, okay. And and part of the reason why it makes sense is that when you have groups of living things that have been separated from each other for thousands, tens of thousands of years, they will begin to accrue genetic differences. Sherpas do good in high altitudes. Yeah. Right? Yes. Um, but so do we just fuck it up because we're like, you know, mongoloids? Like, do we just, are we just useless for all genetic studies? We're too mixed? <laughs> well, hold on. First of all, mongoloid would be sort of the racisty thing for, for a certain kind of Asian, right? I wish uh, I... Mo- mongrel, maybe, is what you're saying? Oh, well, a little bit of both, right? <laughs> <laughs> Mo- mongoloid? <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that actually, as populations have sort of, in recent years, become much faster at mixing around right and moving around just physically like too. even by that theory white americans is like super problematic because maybe once upon a time in ireland you had isolated communities for thousands of years oh well that would be wrong because they got invaded all the fucking time but like maybe you did well but in america that doesn't count because everyone's fucking everybody yeah and and also <laughs> white americans black americans right okay Th- this They're is actually super diverse right th- this is an example of yes e- even though a i would say majority 
probably a pretty sizable majority of the enslaved peoples, enslaved black peoples that were brought to America were of West African ethnicity. Right. Even though that's the case, since arriving in the United States of America, a lot of people had sex. Yeah. And a lot of sex. So, so there was a study that was done, okay, by some scientists that recognized that black Americans as a group have a higher incidence of prostate cancer. Okay. They also die more of prostate cancer than their incidence. There's some environmental things going on. There's a lot of problems there. But also just as far as like the prostate cancer popping up in the first place. Right. They have a higher incidence than white Americans as a group. Right. So these scientists were like, is there a genetic reason? Okay. Okay. And so what they did was they looked at the genome of a lot of black Americans. And what they found was that in a majority of them, there was a part of their DNA that was recognized as being in common with a lot of people of West African origin. Okay. Okay. And when they look in that spot, they found a few genes and one really, really strongly in particular that is related to an increased risk of prostate cancer. Bummer. So both a bummer and also very informative. That's very useful right. information. This is good human genetics. Right. But the part of that whole story that doesn't super get a lot of light shown on it because that this is about a discovery for cancer right right but there's a sizable minority of black americans that do not have that part of their dna from west african descent right it was from european descent okay wow okay there is there we go black americans are not just one genetic group of people right okay they like so many other human groups of people they are a mixed group of people. Some they, stuff happens. They are people. They are yeah. individual people. Okay. Yeah. And so that that's a, that's another thing that I think happens, right? Is like we often nowadays we'll talk about like what I don't know why white people care so much about the idea of racial purity. They're all mixed up, right? Yeah. I don't know why they care about trying to focus on black Americans like they are just one group of people either. Right. The extent to which black Americans... Some are Republicans. <laughs> the extent to which they have to suffer under that idea is because of racism. Right. Racism is the thing that forces them to be a single group that white people can then point at in that way. Because, you know, otherwise they're a heterogeneous group of people, just like right. everybody else. Right. And so that's the thing is that now that this particular locus has been found for like prostate cancer, the reality is you can, with limited resources, maybe you'll want to screen black Americans more in this spot to see if they have an increased risk. But this spot actually largely doesn't care if you're black or white. Right. If a white person has that mutation in that spot, they would also have an increased risk of prostate cancer. There you go. It was found because of this grouping. But its truth applies to everybody. Right. Okay. So I think that that's, that's some of the complicated aspects of genetics and human genetics is a lot of times we'll find these things because of groupings of people based off of ancestry or ethnicity or even sometimes race. And then we'll think that that's some kind of unique element of those people as opposed to something that's more broadly true about biology. Right. Uh, This is a question that we had from a listener, and I think we discussed this in our epigenetics episode. But, like, black Americans, right, have suffered under systemic racism for so long, and that manifests in actual physiological stress in all sorts of ways. Does that have any genetic effect? Or is that, does that, like, I mean, is there a thing there? Or is that just, like, crazy talk? Yeah, so that's really interesting. I think there's a lot of studies that have demonstrated that there is an epigenetic effect of stress. Yeah, so that, what does that mean? Well, we, we talked extensively about epigenetics in our epigenetics episode. Go back and listen. <laughs> but the idea is that rather than changing the ATCG of your actual DNA and your genome, right. you can have changes at other levels that will still impact how often a gene is read, whether it's red all the way or just part of it. Right. What cells it's red in at what times in your right. life. Everyone's so horny for genes that they forget that there's like an entire multi-step process to the expression of those genes. Right. And at every step, there is control and feedback from your environment. Right. Okay? And so epigenetics usually is talking about changes, uh, impacts your environment has on the repercussions of your genes. Right. Um, that usually last a while. Right. They're not transient changes. They're ones that sort of last through cell divisions and in some cases can be passed from like mothers to their unborn children. And stuff right. Like that, right. I remain skeptical of the idea of intergenerational epigenetic changes. That right. means your great, 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 great grandma was very stressed 
And then now you have marks on your DNA because of that original stress. Right. Okay. And also that's kind of dangerous thinking because that's like, that starts to be the territory of where you have like the original eugenicists who are like, oh, well, we've bred African-Americans to be workers. And so they're strong, but stupid, right? Like that's like, it's a kind of a dangerous alley and it's been the, the alleyway of racists for a long time. Yeah. So what I do want to say on this broad idea though, is that you don't need that explanation for something similar to be true. Right. Which is the stresses of racism, I think, do have epigenetic effects on people. Right. Health effects on people. Right. And the stresses of racism have not gone away. It's not like when slavery was gone, all of a sudden things got better. Right. right? The stresses of racism exist to right now. Right. I mean, the prostate cancer is a good example in as much as it, like there's these genes in some black Americans that makes them more predisposed towards prostate cancer. Also, a lot of them die of prostate cancer. That's environmental shit going on, right? I mean, right. that's access to healthcare. Um, that's, I don't know, that's all I got. But that's like, it's like, it's environmental. Yeah, yeah. And in some of the environmental pollution, for example. Right. A, a lot of people in minority groups, including black Americans, but other minority groups, live in parts of America where the environment is shittier. Yeah. Right? So, in any case... It's uh, about to get a lot worse, too, because <laughs> the one thing with COVID that the Trump administration did was, like, get rid of all EPA protections. Yes. They're like, there's a pandemic, we have to dump shit into streams. Crazy. So, it should be apparent by now, racism is not over, and it still has a huge impact on science. We're going to take a little musical interlude, reset our hot feelings, and then we're going to talk about racism in modern academia. Now, we've already hinted at this, so this is not surprising. But, Sean, racism is gone now. So now there's no racist science that's popular and widestream, right? Yes, thank you, Nick. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think in this closing part of this episode, we want to give a little bit of attention to more modern stuff. Right. right? This is not just a history. Right. And so, for example, in 1994, a shitty book was published called The Bell Curve. Yeah, even I know about it. Yes, and so, like many shitty but clever books, <laughs> The Bell Curve, uh, it's a mix. Accurate statistics, false statistics, accurate statements, false conclusions, right? And in that mix is sort of what's ultimately a relatively simple conclusion, though, which is that the bell curve is about eugenics and social Darwinism. Right. This is just a shitty eugenics book. 1994, guys. Yeah. It advocates for scaling back on social services because some children are of poor genetic stock and it would be wasteful to bother to try to improve their situation. Just straight Paul Ryan stuff. It advocates for cutting off immigration from parts of the world with races that the book deems inferior. I misspoke. Paul Ryan actually cared about poverty. He didn't do anything about it, but he says he cares. Mitch McConnell stuff. This is straight Mitch McConnell stuff. <laughs> you know, the one of the things is that this book was not written by like what I would really call scientists. Right. I mean, weren't they social scientists? There were social scientists slash political advocates. Right. They were advocating for specific political policies. A quick thing, because I, I studied a lot of history, a lot of social science. Social science is a bad word. Social science is bullshit. Positivism <laughs> was a mistake. You really should just be called humanities. Economics <laughs> is a humanity. Okay? So, like, shut the fuck up about social science. <laughs> it's a bad expression. It's a terrible field. Someone's going to be mad. Okay. <laughs> so, look. The thing is, when you look at the bell curve, any one sentence or like stat in the bell curve, there is endless debate over, right? If you go online, any one thing that the bell curve said, you will have people going back and forth on whether that thing is true. You're looking at the trees. We need to see the forest. It's bullshit. Right. Not every stat in the book is a lie, nor does it have to be a lie for the book overall to be bullshit and dangerous and written by shitty people. Okay, so this is this is a disinformation campaign that was written to be able to convince people in words that sound scientific that some races of people are inferior to others and yeah. are therefore undeserving of help. That's really fucked up. And that was 1994. And you will find people now that are like, The Bell Curve was a very influential book in my thinking. Right. Okay. This book matters to people today. Right. 
Okay. It's like how Ayn Rand is a bad novelist, <laughs> and yet somehow she's like on people's mantles. Yes. And you're like, you're like, you guys need to play Bioshock. <laughs> how can this video game be so much smarter than you? Yes. Agreed. Okay. So, to end this episode on not just the bell curve, bell curve as an example, but like right. overall. Right, Sean, you're a scientist. Right. Are you racist? Eh. Yeah, probably a little bit. That will, you can't say that <laughs> in a pod. Well, uh, no. <laughs> so, so I, I'm, I'm a person who subscribes to a very broad idea of racism, okay? Which is to say that a person who is not like actively fighting against structures in society okay. that produce inequity between racial groups yeah. is a racist. Oh, okay. Okay. And so what I imagine is that throughout the course of my life, I've never thought that any group of people is like inferior to me. Okay. Right? Like, so in that sense, not a racist. Okay. So, you're, so you're definitely a little less racist than I am. But, well, <laughs> <laughs> but the, the thing is that I think everyone has ways in the United States of America, especially if you were born and raised here. Sure. Has ways that they need to work to improve. Sure, we are complicit in our system, right? We're born into it. Uh, and if the system is is flawed in some way, which we, of course we know it is, either you work against it or you just necessarily are part of it. Yeah, and you know, so okay, so here's an example. Like, I, I don't know if you want to call this racist or what, okay? But as a PhD student and now as a postdoc... I have had the opportunities to work with undergraduates to help mentor them and uh, help them see, you know, like, hey, do you want science to be your career? Right? right. So they worked with me in the laboratory. Right. And I've mentored a few different people. None of them have been black students. Right. And almost always the way that I find these students is that they will come to me. They'll usually email my professor or something like that. I'll get their information. Right. It's from this sort of outreach that they begin right and then i'm just like oh look hey this resume looks not that bad i'll have an interview see if we click or whatever right, right. but it's almost never a proactive thing where i say you know a group that i particularly want to help is black students interested in stem and then go find those students right okay? and that lack of proactive activity means that there has been time and energy that i could have been using to help mentor people and i didn't do it I mean, but in your defense, it's like, that's why structures in society is so important, right? Is that like, you also have incentives in society to do your work. And so like, that's why there should be like, an institution that is trying to do this, this thing that we agree with. Right? I think that's true. But in the sense that people, especially, especially now, post George Floyd, these protests, I think a lot of people are looking around, they're saying, I want to be a more proactive ally. Right. And systemic change is going to take a long time. Right. And we should do it. I'm not saying don't do it. Do systemic change. Be a part of that. Right. But also, there is personal change that even if it doesn't really move the needle very much systemically, could move the needle individually for an individual right. person. Which, of course, eventually has a systemic effect because the system is comprised of people. Right. So that's why, you know, moving forward, I do want to spend some of my time being more proactive, right. finding these students. As a postdoc, I still have that power. Now, because of COVID, there are no undergrads on UCLA campus right now. So right. Like, I cannot do this. Right. But I want to. And once we have students again, back in lab, I'm going to be going out there. Right. I'm going to find people and I'm going to ask them if they want to work with me. You know? Like science in theory. You're right. supposed to not be about race. Like, there's nothing about science that means you can't be diverse. Right. right? Well, like, the academy, academia. Right. We think of intelligence and study and learning as creating people who are, like, enlightened about things. Right. Including societal things, right? This is the classic Socratic trap, is, like, people who are good at something and really, like, quote-unquote smart... You start to just assume that they're smarter right about a lot of stuff. Right. Not true. Not true. <laughs> yeah. And if you folks are on Twitter, I highly suggest that you search the hashtag black in the ivory. Okay. Because these are black people around the world, but also a lot of people in America, black Americans. Right. Who tweet about their experience in academia and often in STEM fields. And make sure you type it right. Because hashtag back into ivory is about an illegal trade. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to stumble into some really dark elephant stuff. Yes, although black in the ivory is also very dark. Okay, I want you to understand right. the experiences of these people. These remarkably raw. This just goes to show how real 
privilege is, is that I was astonished. I was astonished looking at this hashtag. And the reason why I was astonished is because, first of all, black Americans are still extremely underrepresented in academia. Right. So I have run into them far less frequently. Right. It's like George Washington Carver. That's fucking it. (laughs) But a lot of times these things are also what I think sometimes they're called microaggressions, which doesn't really get across... Right, it's a kind of a condescending term now, and it's like, yeah. You know, but it sounds diminutive. Right. But the things they're describing... Feel like macroaggressions. ...are really (laughs) fucked up, especially if you have to deal with them every fucking day. It's incredible. It's incredible shit. So my first reaction is, I'm shocked. But in that shock is the same thing I'm talking about, right? That is the same topic of this discussion, which is that we all, or a lot of us, I think, have this belief that it can't happen here. Right. Right? It doesn't happen here. Right. And we're wrong. We're, yeah. like, fucking wrong. There's, like, definitely some Germans who said in 1939. <laughs> and they're, like, wrong. <laughs> so give me an example, though. Yeah, okay. So there was an article published in... Uh, <laughs> I've actually never been able to say this journal correctly, even though I read it all the time. I think it's uh, Anger van de Kemi. Anger van de Kemi? Well, that's a cute... It must be a great journal. It's actually... A very good journal. Okay. It's, it's an internationally renowned chemistry journal. Okay, so they would never publish anything that's stupid. <laughs> so they published an article by this guy, uh, Thomas Hudlicky. Bad name. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and his, the, the thrust of this article was that diversity is bad for science and chemistry. So why would that be the case? <laughs> well, he was saying all kinds of things about how diversity attempts result in the inclusion of people who are not as good at science. Sure, it's the classic, like, um, meritocracy affirmative action counter-argument, right? Right, right. And, of, of course, academia has never actually been a meritocracy. That's That's been bullshit this entire time. Right, we like, talked about a lot of dilettante <laughs> gentleman polymaths in our sections. Right, but also, there was another part of the argument, which was, like, we're wasting time with things like, there, we have scientific conferences, right? And now some scientific conferences will have like a power hour where they focus on the achievements of women scientists or something. That's cool. And he used that idea, literally an hour taken out to discuss the achievements of women scientists as a waste of time and a negative thing because it doesn't focus on the achievements of male scientists. Dude, men's rights, dude. Which like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like what the... It, oof, boy, yikes. Right, like, come on, guy. And the realistic idea here, the problem is that there's this feeling like in the limited amount of attention that we have, we must highlight this really small subset of the people who have succeeded the most. Right. Okay, disregarding the fact that a lot of times people succeed because of these very same racist and discriminatory structures. And genetics is a great example of how, like, that was a, a collaborative effort in which a male scientist kind of part stole some stuff from a female scientist, and a female scientist doesn't get credit for it. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense if we're trying to, like, highlight a meritocratic... Right. Like, world. Right. And, I mean, Nobel Prizes in general suffer from this problem because they're only allowed to be awarded to, like, I think... A- maximum three people yeah but pretty much no scientific discovery now is because of three people right right that pretty much happens for nothing so so nobel prizes intrinsically have this problem the whole the hero worship of great men doesn't make sense with science the power of modern science the reason it moves at such a remarkable pace is because it's become more and more collaborative right right and you know that's in part because of these successes that we all share in now things like the internet and stuff like toilets <laughs> the toothbrush well it's just uh, we, we, Disneyland we've been able to share so much in science right and it's led to so many of these great discoveries a lot of the big papers now maybe to too great of an extent but like a lot of the papers that are published really big discoveries have author lists that are like 50 to 60 people yeah okay I don't know how you're supposed to fucking give a Nobel Prize out for that it's but anyway no- Nobel tribe anyway thing. that's 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 too far off topic anyway this guy racist and sexist yeah he gives them this article, but Engavante Kemi peer-reviewed it. Right. Okay, it's, so an editor received it, right. presumably read it. Did much better than Bennett. Passed it out to like a couple of reviewers yeah. who presumably read it and said, okay. Right. Came back to the editor, decided to publish it. How did that happen? Right. A little better than Tom Kahn saying we should shoot <laughs> Americans, uh, but still per- seems silly somehow. Yeah, well, it's it's crazy 
that all that happened. Now, since then, the journal has deleted the article. Yay. Suspended that editor. Have blacklisted those reviewers. Okay. So, like, they've done things. 16 members of their scientific advisory committee have quit in disgust over the existence of this article. God, Sean, why are you ruining people's lives, okay, over one article? But it was published. Right. It was published. Yeah. And there is definitely plenty of people who believe in the racist and sexist shit that was in that article. Right. Okay. And even if there weren't, like, even if tomorrow we managed to get rid of all of those racist and sexist people from the academy, there would still be all of this privilege built into the structure that people could still leverage for themselves, right? Like, it's not like if we got rid of racist and sexist people that white people wouldn't still succeed at a greater rate. Right. I mean, like, this is, this is such a small anecdote, but I remember I went to Prague once, right? And it's like this cool town, little small, medieval, whatever. And then I went to Vienna. And I was like, holy shit. It's like this amazing imperial city. The streets are lined with sausages. Uh, not great cooking, actually. But, you know, like pretty cool. And then I went to Budapest. And it's like Soviet hell. And I was looking at these three cities. And I was like, one of them conquered the other two. And it has built into its civilization hundreds of years of wealth. And that's the original sin of modern culture that people, like, don't want to see because, you know, like, they want to think of themselves as individuals and as climbing up on their own accord and as lacking in privilege then. But, like, just by virtue of being born into a community that has paved roads and then a school that is good and then going to college and having the informal networks where you know who you can email, right? Like, that stuff is actually really important. And it's the kind of small ways in which a culture perpetuates the wealthy and the people deprived of wealth. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think uh, we're saying that as two dudes with a lot of privilege. Dude, I have traveled the world. (laughs) (laughs) I went backpacking with Sean once. I was very privileged. In Spain, I didn't like the food, so I just ate at the Cortes Ingles in Barcelona. that was true. (laughs) Very privileged. (laughs) I was like, they got a lot of pork here, Nathan. You don't want any of that pork? You're like, only pizza in Spain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't get paella. (laughs) I don't like saffron. All right, all right. So, you know, I think that basically wraps up this episode. And I think the broad ideas of this episode, eugenics into human genetics, right. into modern day. It's not like racism in science didn't exist before, but it did then, and it certainly does now. Right. Okay. There was no period of science where race was not a part of the, at least the backdrop, if not actually like at the forefront of people's minds. Right. In the attempt to de-racist <laughs> institutions in America, science is not some passive observer. Its history is deeply intertangled with racism and white supremacy, and... It's an important endeavor to try to decouple it now as best as, as as much as that's possible. Yeah, I think if we want to strengthen the institution of science, it's not to build up a false idea of its objectivity. Right. It's to build that strong foundation of recognizing its lack of objectivity, right? right. That intrinsically in humans, we do not have this objectivity that we want to strive for. And so we need to guard against that impulse. I think that that's necessary for science to succeed. and And we need to be honest about it. Okay, guys. Well, thank you for listening. I want to thank Sean what? for being my brother and co-host. Oh. Beautiful every day. Oh. Uh, we want to thank Stacy Song, our sound lord and engineer. Brian Allen for art. Uh, Griffin Allen for the uh, the fun little animations. Nathan Allen for being my younger brother, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> doing that yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, you can tweet at us at Dish Podcast. Hey, you can sign up for our Patreon if that's a thing that you're interested in doing. Uh, if, you know, uh, probably all everyone who listens probably is on 4chan. And so you're probably going to unsubscribe now. <laughs> but if you're one of our few listeners who's not on 4chan uh, and doesn't believe in QAnon, oh uh, you know, review us. <laughs> <laughs> Spread the message of Q. No, just kidding. Jesus. Spread the message. <laughs> oh, shit. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time for our final episode in this racism series about racist experiments and IQ. See you then. Mm-hmm.